Welcome back to the Women Who Roar podcast. Today, I want to talk about religion and toxic relationships. Through my interviews, it's really been crystallized to me that using religious principles in a toxic way to keep women stuck in emotional abuse is a rampant problem that affects both women inside the church and outside of religion. Realizing this helped me kind of focus in on all of the ways toxic religion played a role in my stories of abuse and toxic relationships, as well as those of my guests today. Ironically, what helped me get through my abusive and toxic experiences was God and Jesus, and I feel that Western theology toward women is in many ways about what men want for women, not what God wants for women. So I want to start dismantling these ideas about women that people say are from God because I believe they're the opposite of God's heart for women. If you're not a religious woman, I encourage you to listen anyway, because you've probably heard a lot of these things said about women, or maybe have had some of these tactics pulled against you, because these ideas permeate our culture. When thinking about approaching this subject, I couldn't think of anyone better to talk to than my mom. She was a prison chaplain for 11 years, so she's great at explaining the Bible in ways that make sense to people who aren't familiar with it. She was a scriptural scholar long before that, leading and writing women's Bible studies, teaching theology classes, and speaking for women's groups. She has a great grasp on what the Bible means in historical context and how that can apply to our lives today. And she's also just been through some really hard and messy things, so she really relates with people who aren't people that the church would think are these great, shiny, happy people. She's authentic and real and likes other people who are like that as well. She values authenticity over perfection. And so I think that's always what we need when approaching a conversation about spirituality. Plus, it's a comfy conversation because it's my mom. So let's get into it. Mom, I am so excited to talk to you today. Welcome to my podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I know it's a little unconventional sometimes to have your mom on your podcast, but I really couldn't think of anybody better to talk to about this. And I think you'll have a lot of unique insights. So I'm really excited to talk today. Thank you. Yeah. So I wanted to give a little bit of context as to just kind of why I wanted to interject to this episode. I would say in the interviews that I've done, I've been really shocked by the amount of interviews in which religion and theology played a big role in actually perpetuating abuse against women. It played a role in like justifying toxic behaviors toward women. I really don't think that should be, but I also think that kind of modern Western church theology is responsible for a lot of that. And so I thought, Let's blow this wide open. Okay, <laughs> let's do it. Okay. So I'm just going to start asking the same question that I ask everyone, and that would be, tell me about your personal history with toxic relationships. Well, my biggest personal history of toxic relationship was my upbringing. So my upbringing was kind of funny because there were wonderful things in my upbringing and terrible things in my upbringing, which I think is probably characteristic of a lot of people, especially growing up in a religious household. I'm very thankful for my spiritual upbringing. And, but it, there was a lot of confusion because there was a lot of abuse in my home. And my dad was especially 
narcissistic. I did not recognize that until I became an adult and started to learn about narcissism and learned that. And I, I'm not bitter towards my dad. I have a lot of compassion towards him because he had a horribly abusive childhood. And I really think that that was just how he coped with it. And I think the way he abused me and the way I struggled as a result of the abuse I received from him really worked to give me, in a funny way, a heart of compassion for I could see where it came from. And I think that helped me forgive him. But he was very narcissistic and is true of a lot of narcissists. No one on the outside would have known. He was very funny. People loved him. And there was really two sides of him. He was he could be very wise, but just crazy, destructive, and relationally destructive and abusive. Yeah. Well, with my my personal knowledge of the guest, I would say as happens with many people who have a really big narcissistic presence or a toxic relationship in their upbringing, those kinds of dynamics tend to kind of, you tend to attract that throughout your lifespan in your work environment or your social environment. Sometimes those dynamics tend to almost like chase you down or something. And so, of course, there's the trauma bonding roots of that. But we also had a really interesting discussion about kind of some of the spiritual roots of narcissism and why narcissism will kind of perpetuate throughout across a lifetime. And you put it in a really unique way that I had never heard before. You describe narcissism as being from a spirit of jealousy. So could you explain explain what a spirit of jealousy is and um, how that can kind of have an impact on your life, especially in relation to narcissistic patterns repeating. Well, so let me backtrack a little bit too to go back to how I kind of, what got me thinking along those lines is, and maybe other people that have been in narcissistic situations or raised by narcissists might recognize this pattern. So I would start to recognize things that my dad would do and like cards he would give me that would be mean and say mean, hurtful things. And I remember for making comments about what good things would happen to us, making snide remarks and things like that. And I remember at one point thinking, I it feels like my dad is jealous of me. It's so weird. Like, why? Why would that be? And then years later, we were talking to someone who was going over. We had had these genetic tests done, and we were looking for these genetic polymorphisms or mutations. And I was homo- a homozygous empath. So I have these, you know, matching genes for being an empath. And so that means that I have a very strong genetic propensity towards empathy. She was saying that people that are homozygous empaths tend to be very compassionate, have a lot of light, but people tend to be attracted to them that want to take your light instead of develop their own. And so in keeping with what you said, I noticed that I had had a lot of relationships. I had tend to have a history where people, even when I was a kid, would copy things I would do, a school project, or I would say, I'm going to do this. And I had certain friends that would go, yeah, I'm going to do that. Or I, even as an adult, I would have friends that would say, you know, 
kind of copy what I was doing and then tell me why they were better at it than me. Just weird things like that. Or as a kid, I sang. I had a good singing voice and I started singing in church when I was like seven years old. And I can remember ma- a couple of moms coming up to me and telling me, you're too young to sing in church. You have no business singing a hymn. Well, then as an adult, I would be singing in church and then people would say, you should be singing hymns. You know, no other kinds of songs in church. I mean, it was just weird. And so it kind of got me thinking. And I'm Ellie, who's my youngest daughter, you know, your sister, would <laughs> said when she she was with me at that appointment where the doctor was saying people that are homozygous empath tend to have people try and take their life. She said she turned to me and she goes, Mom, that sounds like you. So it got me thinking of like, there's like this spiritual dynamic happening here. This Because the Bible talks about how, you know, the sins of the fathers go to the third and fourth generation. I want to address one thing. The scripture that you mentioned about like the father's sins being visited upon the children. Because I feel like if you don't understand that verse, it sounds like God punishes you for what your parents did and that doesn't seem fair so i just wanted to interject like my understanding of that verse is it's referring to you know what science has informed us that traumas get passed down generationally and they can express epigenetically there's another piece of that verse the other half talks about that you know when we are walking with god then he reverses that or he he blesses you for generations and generations and generations the idea is that basically like god can redeem the impact that your parents mistakes would have on you and actually turn it into a blessing so i wanted to mention that because as somebody who has personally had a lot of like church and religious wounding i know that if i heard that verse out of context i would be like that sucks so unless that cycle is broken off which it can be but if we don't recognize it and we kind of stay in this cycle, we can keep perpetuating a cycle. And so I started thinking about that more and more and I could see this pattern happening in relationships. And then I would come across, there would be Bible verses that got me thinking about this even more. And there's a verse in the Bible, in this book of the Bible called Numbers, that even says jealousy is a spirit. And so that was really interesting to me. And so I started thinking, well, so for maybe some of the people listening that aren't familiar with the Bible, the Bible gives us this idea that we live in a, we live a spiritual existence. Our existence isn't just material. It's more than just a mere material existence, but we live a spiritual existence. And then there's another verse in the Bible. When you're having problems, Your problem is not merely just a physical problem. It's not merely just a relational problem, but there's spiritual roots involved and that we're really dealing with these spirits, these spiritual powers, right, that harass us or, you know, it's like the cartoons, you know, when you were a little kid. I know you guys didn't get to watch very much cartoons. You guys didn't get to watch much TV, but in kids' cartoons, you know, like the devil's on one shoulder and the angel is on the other. Well, the biblical idea of that would be that like a demon, a demon, a demon would be a spirit that the Bible's referring to would be on one shoulder. And then like the Holy Spirit would be on the other shoulder. And the the spirit, the demon is telling you, don't do the bad thing. And the 
angel or the Holy Spirit is telling you that they are, oh, do the good thing, right? It's just like kind of what you see in cartoons. So that's kind of what the Bible is talking about. The reference, great. Such an intellectual discussion here. But I mean, it kind of, that was a picture. God uses it all, right? That was a picture from my lots of hours of cartoons as a child that kind of stood out to me that, hey, I think there is a spirit of jealousy that is coming against me because I have this way that God created me to be compassionate and empathetic and to have God's light in me, to share his love with other people. And so these this jealousy spirit doesn't want me to have that. And so that kind of takes me back to what I was going to pack unpack earlier about jealousy being a spirit because the Bible tells us like God is the spirit, angels are spirits, demons are spirits, Satan is a spirit. And so there's and we have spirit. Pardon me? And we have and we have spirit. We are spirits, actually. We but we're body, soul, and spirit, right? So there's these verses in the Old Testament that tell us that Satan was jealous of God. Satan is saying, I'm gonna make myself like the most high. And there's another verse that tells us like he was beautiful. He was perfect in wisdom and beauty. And so he thought so highly of himself that he said, I'm going to make my, I should be God. I'm going to make myself like the most high. And there's another verse that said he became so prideful that he exalted himself and rebelled against God. And what happened is he got cast down from heaven. And that's how he ended up in the garden. And there's a verse in the book of Job that tells us that, that, Satan was actually cast out of heaven before Adam and Eve were in the garden. And so that's how this was kind of the picture that started coming to me. Like Satan was really jealous of Adam and Eve's identity. God has this identity for us that's higher, that's more elevated, this spiritual identity that is not hindered by our just just by physical circumstances and conditions that we can actually live above that. We have higher reasoning. We have higher capacity. And so Satan was jealous of that. And he went after Adam and Eve because of that. And at the heart of that, I think, is that is a spirit that has perpetuated. Yeah, I'm glad you brought this up because one thing that I have kind of come to think is that I feel like there is a distortion. You know, you're referencing Adam and Eve and Satan in the garden. I want to unpack that a little bit more because that's all referring to the Christian creation story. And I think that there has been this like perversion of the creation story that the men at the top of the food chain have passed down to us that this is what this creation story means. And that interpretation keeps them at the top of the food chain and it's very convenient. But what you're describing is something a little bit different. And then Satan being the belief there, I think, being that he is a fallen angel and has this, it kind of like what you said, is a fallen angel who is jealous of the elevated position that people have, that human beings have, and is perpetuating evil in the world from that place of jealousy. little more background on that would be that in at least in christian theology the belief is that human beings have a very special relationship with god human beings have authority and we get to like our the choices we make impact the entire earth they impact the physical mm -hmm. earth they impact things that are happening in the spiritual world and so there's this idea that satan this fallen angel is jealous of that i kind of went on a rabbit trail here but going <laughs> 
<laughs> going back to the creation, the creation story piece of things, you know, women, the guard, it's kind of believed that that's the, the creation story is the story that kind of explains how evil entered the world and how humankind was made. Some people take it literally, some people take it allegorically. I think for this context, it doesn't really matter how you take it. The lessons are the same. But in that story, you know, it's told that like the conversation between, there was a conversation between a woman, the original woman and the devil, the fallen angel. And that's what initiated sin into the world. And so there's been this kind of theological attitude that women are the reason sin is in the world and, you know, women are, can't be trusted and they need men to be leading them because if the man had been there, you know, none of this would happen and our world would be perfect still. And it's kind of this derogatory attitude towards women. I do talk a little bit about in my book what, like, kind of a different view on that creation story because after sin enters the world, in that account, women women are given this title of mother before having had children. And the actual word for mother is, you know, somebody who brings light, who sees life before it's developed, who kind of sees things creatively and nurtures it with this mm-hmm. creative energy. And so the idea is like all this disorder has entered the scene and who's going to bring order to the disorder? Women are um and then that's kind of where the idea of the generator of evil in the world being jealous of women because women are the energy that's going to be competing most fiercely with the, the disorder that you know the devil will say is trying to bring into the world the energy the life-giving capacity of women is what most strongly competes with that so I think it's really a story that elevates women, but been taken and kind of twisted to blame women for everything that's wrong in the world. So let's let's jump into that. I do want to kind of backtrack in a bit and ask you about a little bit more about narcissism and spirit of jealousy. But what would you say about women kind of being blamed for everything that's wrong in the world? Yeah, because then after Adam and Eve fell, Similar to what you were saying again about how God redeems things. God came to Adam and Eve and he told Eve, hey, I'm going to give you a chance. You're going to you're going to bear pain in childbirth. But through childbirth, there's one day going to be a savior that is going to come as a result through your long term lineage. And that person is going to crush Satan's head. He's going to destroy him. He's going to take his power to steal our lives away. And so through Jesus, Jesus brings this gift of like abundant life and eternal life, right? So I really think that Satan is, Satan is jealous of that. Satan is jealous of the woman. In fact, there are verses in the Bible. In fact, one of them is in the book of Revelation that says, Satan goes after the woman. And it's put in this very poetic language. It doesn't come out and say it like that. But Satan goes after the woman and I believe Satan goes after women in ways through the spirit of jealousy because women are life givers. Women are creating life. Satan cannot do that. And so I think there's that have flowed out from him spirits of jealousy. Remember the cartoon example that come after us. They're not cartoons. This is real. But the spirits that the spirit of jealousy that can operate 
through people sometimes. And I think a lot of times we see that most destructively manifested through narcissistic people. So as far as women being blamed for everything, I have a really unique thought on that. And I have not heard anybody else talk about this. So think what you want. But this is my thought, uh, my observation. There's two things. One, I think, well, the instruction to not eat from the tree was given to Adam. Eve was not there for that instruction. So yes, Eve was deceived. And that the not eat from the tree was kind of like that the... In the story, that represents sin entering the world, eating from this. Yes, exactly. So don't in, well, it actually, yeah, but it actually, I think it's not so much sin entering the world as, because Satan was in the world, sin was already there. It's having really a knowledge of that that wasn't meant to be awakened in people because then that changed how we engaged with that, right? But that's a whole nother trail we don't oh, go down. Yeah, I also feel like I should kind of like define when I'm saying sin, sin just being the word for like everything that's broken in the world. Uh, right. Okay, right. So the pattern of us choosing things that we know isn't good, aren't good for us, but having yeah. a hard time saying no yeah. anyway. Yeah. There's like a yeah, lot so of that was the curiosity term, which we have to like un- untalking. <laughs> yeah, so that's the event that, that really, really stole that, right? Okay, so... But God, before that, Adam had been told by God, okay, you can eat from any tree in the garden. Just don't eat from this one tree. And because if you eat from this tree, you're going to die. So Adam had that instruction. It was not there when that instruction was given. So to me, I think, all right, well, why didn't Adam step up when Satan was tempting Eve and go, either Adam had given Eve erroneous knowledge of what God said, or he hadn't told her anything. I mean, we don't know. But the fact is, Adam knew, and he didn't say anything during that interchange. So that in itself, I think, is enough to go, okay, we can't blame Eve for everything. I mean, yes, her choosing to take that act and go against what God said precipitated sin entering the world. So, But I do think there is there's mutual responsibility that was happening there. And I do think it's evidence that God kicked both of them out of the garden. He didn't kick just Eve out. He kicked both of them out. But the bigger thing, going back to this idea of Satan being jealous of our identity, is women, it, woman in the Hebrew there, the name given to woman is actually called Ezer. And that is a word that is actually, it's almost like a military, it's a kind of a, it has military inferences that it's someone who comes alongside and fights strongly with you. There's this idea of a sharpening of you know, someone who has tremendous strength. It's similar to, it was what you were talking about earlier. And so this is the name God gave to women. And in fact, it's the name that is used for Jesus. And it's a name for that's used for the Holy Spirit. So if women are inherently evil or less than and have to be controlled as a result of that, then why? I don't think that fits with this concept of God giving her naming woman after himself, after aspects of his character. And I think it's a very, women were, God created women in a very elevated capacity and in a very unique role to bring life into the world, to sustain life, to fight for life, to keep it going. And I think that perpetuates this spirit of jealousy and 
I think we can see that in many places in the world still today where women are even defined as women are just thought of to be inherently evil and they're terribly oppressed. Yeah. And I would say, I think, you know, people who have grown up in church have kind of been taught like that women are like the reason women are kind of set up as competing with the devil at the beginning of the human race, at least, would be because, you know, ultimately would be a woman who would bring the savior into the world. But I think I think that is that is kind of the foundation of it. But I think those redemptive life giving qualities just permeate what it means to be intrinsically female, intrinsically a woman. Those are qualities that are in every woman, every every woman, not just the woman who brought the savior into the world. It's like her role or those those traits are applicable to all women and female characteristics, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think why why did Satan go after Eve? Why didn't he go to Adam? I mean, I think it's significant if women are so, you know, supposed to be these meek, powerless, dependent little things. Why would Satan bother to go to Eve? He would go to Adam, right? But I mean, I think Satan knew, okay, that God had a plan for create for creation and redemption of people from the creation of the earth. And Satan was Satan was there with God before all this happened in the garden with Adam and Eve, I think he knew the plan. And so he's going after the woman. He's going to strike. In fact, that's the wording it says that Satan is going to strike her heel. He's going to, but she's going to crush his head. He's going to think I can get to her this way, but she's going to crush his head. And so I think even the fact that Satan went to the woman, you know, people tend to view like, oh, women are, you know, just less than they can be deceived or whatever. But I think it really goes back more to the idea of what you said is there's this, you know, mother DNA that we have in us that brings order out of disorder and that she's going to be bringing the savior into the world. And so he's trying to stop that by going to her. Yeah. So anyway, I just think that's that's a story that I feel like kind of gets the typical like I hate to say the word chauvinist but sometimes that's the way that story is taken that you know we can't the man can't be responsible for anything we can't hold the man responsible for not engaging or interacting with this dynamic it's just all put on the female and I think that idea whether or not you believe in the creation story the idea that all shortcomings of men are somehow traced back to women's fault that permeates our culture that permeates toxic relationships mm-hmm. and so that was something i kind of just wanted to address whether or not you believe the creation story like i want to go back to the root of where this idea is coming from and at least put another energy into the world mm-hmm. the other thing that i wanted to ask you a little bit more about is going back to narcissism being a spirit of jealousy so the summary is that you kind of defined from the beginning of time evil in the world has been jealous of women because of this intrinsic qualities or these intrinsic qualities that women were created to have of bringing order into disorder to bringing good into evil and so there's just this kind of jealous agenda against women 
And I think we see that in the history of the world. Women have always been oppressed. Women have always had a struggle. But can you talk a little bit more about how narcissism specifically is like, how do we see narcissism expressing in a jealous way? Well, so I think it's not always maybe in an overt sense in, you know, the way we might experience it when we're little kids or the way we think of it like covetousness, right? Where, oh, I want what you have. It is that, but it's not necessarily like, oh, you have a nice car. I want your car. I think it goes back to this whole concept like we've been talking about of identity and narcissism wants you to serve, want to be served. Narcissism wants you to serve it. It wants you to serve its purposes. And your existence is for the well-being of that person. And so as long as you are serving that person, I think, you know, psychology would call it as long as you're giving, you're serving their narcissistic supply, then everything is great and they're going to be nice to you and they're going to cultivate you. But if you take away from that, you become your own person. You elevate or set yourself above or outside of that, out of that narcissistic system. They're going to try and control you. They're going to try and attack you. They're going to try and keep you in it. And so you're a narcissist, I think, sees our identity as someone that enhances their purposes rather than each enhancing each other it's like well this person is here to enhance me it is here to really serve my purposes and to serve my life and i don't even think they necessarily cognitively process it like that but i think it's a very dangerous mindset because that is a very religious mindset right that what we've been talking about oh well you know women have to their purpose is to serve the man. They're less than the man. They got to make the man look good, prop up the man, whatever. These, these are a lot of thoughts that perpetuate in religious circles, not just Christianity, but all kinds of religions have that mindset. And I think it's very dangerous and it is not at all what Jesus modeled or what is modeled in the Bible, but scripture has been twisted to perpetuate that. Yeah, well, I was saying... I always say, you know, men are the ones who have predominantly taught scripture mm-hmm. and the theology they teach is all about men being, you know, this like little mini God status. Of course, you know, the people at the top of the food chain teaching a theology that keeps them there. So anyway, I do, I kind of want to put the narcissistic jealousy thing into more practical relational terms. So this is interesting because I was talking about this with someone being recently and are they don't care about relational connection like a lot of us do, you know, people in kind of healthy relationships or trying to have healthy relationships. Um, narcissists care about image and what how people perceive. And so the relationships in their life are not based on connection. They're based on what you represent to them, which is why you might see a narcissist like at some point in time, they're treating you like a little goddess. Well, that's when you're, when you are acting within the parameters of what they want you to represent. Let's say they want you to represent like a sexy trophy, but then if you are doing something for yourself that's not about them, then they're treating you horribly because mm-hmm. they don't really care about you as a person. They care about you checking certain boxes to make, to feed their narcissistic image. And so, a lot of the motivation behind behaviors and narcissism 
come from a place of jealousy of wanting to take what you have. So they might tell you you're so smart and you're so beautiful, but it's not because they actually admire you or love those qualities about you as a person. They love that being associated with those qualities in you making them look good. Narcissists also tend to often be attracted to people who are highly empathic because empaths really give a lot. And narcissism, narcissists want people who are willing to give to them, you know, reorganize their lives to be all about the narcissist. And so that's also kind of intrinsically motivated from a place of jealousy. And, you know, narcissists, they're observers of people. So they that's why they're so charming. They know how to study people and to learn what people want to hear to produce a certain outcome. But even when we're getting the narcissistic charm, that's not because they're so charming to the narcissist. That's because they have learned that those are the things that they need to say to get you into a position of possession and control. And really, it's possession and it's control for the sake of making the narcissist feel good about themselves, look good to others, that kind of drives all of the dynamics that we see in narcissistic relationships. And I think it's kind of putting it in those terms makes it easy to kind of step back and go, yeah, you know what? That is, all of those are jealously motivated behaviors. Well, I think it's really significant that you said you become, you know, there's times when you're like a little goddess to them. And I think that that language is spot on because you literally are a little goddess to them. There is, I don't think it's all like, I don't think there's always this cognitive, I'm trying to control but they really see you as the means to them being okay, to the means to their elevation. You have something that they need to be okay, right? To, to be popular, liked, seen, whatever it is. You have something. That's, that is God worship, right? It's like putting a person, this is what the Bible would call idolatry. You are making an idol of that person. You're putting that person in this place that this person is what makes me okay. And and so then that also, you know, a narcissist, the study of narcissism, I guess would call that, you know, love bombing. They love bomb you because, oh my gosh, I found the answer and they're all swept up in that. But then when you disappoint them and you fall short, well, then comes the other side. And this is the problem with worshiping a goddess because a goddess is a false god. A goddess, people are not able to complete you. People are not able to totally fulfill you. And so there is completion and fulfillment that comes out of relationships, but they don't complete you. They don't fulfill you. They're always going to disappoint you. Nobody's perfect. And so, but I think the narcissist, because they don't recognize that and, you know, they see this almost like a spiritual light in this person. I don't think they would tr categorize it that way, but, you know, you have what they need. And then when you don't supply that anymore, well, you can just, you can, you can cast that aside. You can punish it. You can whatever, you know, because this is not an all, another person is not an all powerful person. A woman is not an all powerful person like God is, right? I mean, this is, we do this, people do this to celebrities and football celebrities all the time, or I mean, sports celebrities all the time. We, we love them as long as they're doing great and entertaining us and say all the things we want to hear, but then we just forget about them, cast them aside, don't like them, 
you know, as soon as they're not performing up to our standards. And that same dynamic happens in, re- in, the re- in relationships with a narcissist. Yeah, when you can tell that it's from a place of jealousy because something you said reminded me of this. My ex, Kyle, used to do this where a lot of the fruit that came from me being a spiritual person, he really, like, would be the things he would kind of worship, so to speak. You know, those mm-hmm. were the things he really put me on a pedestal for. But then he would absolutely mock me and make fun of me for having a spiritual practice. And in my mind, I was like, well, everything that you love about me is because of this. So why are you making Mm -hmm. fun of it? But it makes more sense when you're looking at it from the lens of jealousy because it's like he loves the, the fruit of that. But it also is something that competes with my competes for my affection with him. It's the same thing. It doesn't have to be spiritual practice. You know, think about that. Anything that a toxic partner has made fun of you for, maybe it's like your career. You know, at first, they're like, oh, I love that you're such a career woman. But then they start to get jealous of that because it competes for your time and your resources and attention from them. And then they start attacking you in the very place where they were once kind of building you up and worshiping you. So mm-hmm. I think we can see narcissism playing out that way. Well, can I just comment on that before we go on? So I think, so this is, I mean, I I think this goes back to what we are saying, the verses you can observe, why I said jealous, one of the reasons I was observing jealousy to be a spirit, because this is a spiritual process that is happening, that, you know, Satan wanted to elevate himself to the position of God, something that at one time he worshiped and contributed towards, but Ultimately, he wanted to be in that position. He was jealous. He wanted that position. He wanted what God had. He wanted the worship and the beauty and all that that God had. And so then when he couldn't get it, couldn't have it, he rebelled against it. He attacked it and has been attacking it ever since. And I think, I also think it's interesting from the standpoint of, I think what gets a lot. So what I think that demonstrates is that narcissists tend to be their own authorities, right? And I think that comes from a place of being hurt at some point in life and learning, saying, I can't trust anymore, so I'm going to be God now. I'm going to exalt myself. And I don't, again, I don't think this is the cognitive mental process that is happening, but I think it's how narcissists will tend to act to a broken trust or a deep wound or a trauma. And instead of going through the process of healing from it, recognizing it, doing the hard work, it's easier to try and take somebody else's light, take that shortcut. And I think part of this is, you know, men have the cultural position and the strength. Most men are, most narcissists are men. Some, there are some women. But again, usually people that are narcissists are in some type of position of power that they can, they can exploit other people's weakness, their dependence, or they just want to steal what really a form of stealing the inner strength, the light, the inner beauty that the other person has for themselves rather than taking the risk of trusting again or learning a new paradigm, a new way of thinking and and interact, engaging with life. Yeah, I do want to, you said something about like when you were giving the comparison to Satan being jealous of what God had and when he couldn't have that. And I would want to kind of caveat that and say when he couldn't have that on his terms. Yeah. Because I think like the, a lot of Christian belief, or I would say the scriptures, I, I don't know, I can like keep those separate, would, would teach that God wants to share 
glory and beauty and power and everything good about mm-hmm. himself God wants to share. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of, that applies also when you're in a healthy relationship, everything good that you have, you share with someone who loves you. Right. But when narcissism or jealousy is in the picture, that person doesn't want to share it. They want to control it. They want to possess mm-hmm. it. And then there's this competition that happens with you having anything good or beautiful that they don't feel like they're in possession. So mm-hmm. I think that metaphor works well. So I I have felt like through a lot of my interviews and a lot of my personal life experience that a lot of the theology, some of, a lot of it we've kind of started to touch on, but Western Christianity really serves women up on a platter to be in a toxic or emotionally abusive relationships, to get stuck in these patterns and dynamics. Because I think that Western Christianity is what's used oftentimes to justify a lot of these behaviors. And I really want to dismantle that. Because I have this thing that I say that a lot of men in the church, what they're looking for is a sexy submissive. So they want all the like sexy benefits of women, but then they want to plaster onto that this like religious theology of also you must submit. And of like, of course, being a man, why wouldn't you want that? It's like somebody to be sexy for you and do whatever you say whenever you want. But I don't think that's very honoring or elevating of women. And I don't think it models the attitude that Jesus showed toward women. And so will you bring up, so I want to bring up, have you bring up some of the verses that people actually use to make this argument? Because, you know, some of the people listening to this might not ever read those verses, but those verses do float around. And I think that we should kind of talk about them to do them justice for what they actually mean and not just have them weaponized to shut women down. Yeah. So, well, I think, well, there's certain Bible verses, right, that are typical verses that people quote about women being in submission to men and that get used in order to bolster that position. There is this verse that is like, Every, well, I shouldn't say every, but every time that a Christian man is making the argument that women shouldn't have any authority over men, there is this verse that they always quote. And I want to address that because you will hear Christians saying that. So I'm going to read the verse and then I have a funny little story about it and then we'll kind of tackle it. So it says, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. So what is the picture that we get when we read that verse? 19 kids and counting. 19 kids and counting. Long dresses to the ankle, very quiet, submissive to the husband, and and your old uh, girl is childbearing, if, right? Or you the highest role is childbearing, and I that is such a high role, right? Because that is women, women giving life, bringing life into the world. That is something men cannot do. That is such an elevated position. True, but I feel like in a lot of like kind of conservative Christian models that really love this verse, it's used to kind of keep women from having other interests, other pursuits, and really just kind of being the man's baby machine. Yes. And that's not even what that, that's not even what those words mean. So there's this context that's happening here, right? So I think like the, what this reminds me of is I know that 
you were working at a school for a while and you were teaching a class that you were very qualified to teach. You were very good at it. In fact, the man who was the head of the school had asked you to teach the class. But then all these parents came in who are kind of a very conservative line of thinking. And they thought that they used this verse to justify that you couldn't be a teacher to their 12-year-old boys because their boys are men in air quotes. So this verse just has a way of getting out of control. <laughs> and so I wanted you to tell us a little bit more about what does it actually mean? Because it sounds like it's talking about sexy submissives. Yeah. Well, okay. First thing I would hope people will remember after hearing this podcast, I hope whenever they're reading the Bible that they will remember or when they hear scriptures, the Bible was not written to us. The Bible was written to those specific cultures, to specific cultural issues that were being dealt with. You know, Paul writes these letters to these different churches. The Paul is the author of the... Paul, oh, yeah, Paul is the... This yeah, is from an excerpt. This is an excerpt from a letter that was written to an early church by Paul is the person who wrote it. Yeah, so Paul's writing writing these letters to these churches, telling them how to deal with problems that they're having, right? So this letter in this book of the Bible in First Timothy, he's writing to one of the disciples of Jesus that was, but now the church is spreading out. And so at this church, and he's having problems there, and Paul's writing to him going, here's how to deal with this problem. So Paul, this letter is about issues that are happening at the church of Ephesus. And what was happening there is that Ephesus was this Greek city that had been ruled by the goddess Artemis. And Artemis was the goddess of fertility. And she had, she had a, what was it? Some, she had eggs around her midsection that symbolized, that were a symbol of fertility. And so, you know, in the, in this church at Ephesus, people were kind of adapting, you know, they didn't know what to do. They didn't know whether to be more like the the follow a model of the worship of artemis or whether to have the 19 kids and county model but what he's referring to here when he says women are going to be saved through childbearing that word saved is this word sozo and it's talking it's saying the original language has this idea that the woman is going to be saved and it's sozo is this word that means holistically saved body soul and spirit through the birth and this birth is referring to the birth of the son jesus not just any child but it's talking it's really not it's not talking about women are going to be saved through prolific fertility as they would have believed as they might have believed in artemis with the worship i mean and in ephesus with the worship of artemis he's paul's telling them there's this greater salvation this holistic body soul and spirit salvation that women can have that comes through Jesus being born of a woman to say it's not that Paul was trying to enforce this performance of being a baby machine but he's contrasting this religious belief where in Ephesus there was this there were temple prostitutes and just cast women would cast off all well the whole culture would cast off all sexual re restraint because there was this elevation of you know I don't know, for lack of a better term, out promiscuity and having lots of, you know, having lots of babies. And but Paul's trying to say, don't do that. Don't cast off all sexual restraint as you would have practiced before. 
But if you continue in faith, love, and holiness and self-control, there's this greater salvation that you can be experienced than just prophetic fertility and reproduction. He's actually trying to elevate women out of this objectification of being a sexual instrument for temple prostitution, for the for men's sexual fulfillment, and elevating them to this much higher status that women could engage on a spiritual level, just like men could. And women could experience these spiritual things just like men could. Because in that culture, women were not spiritually taught. They were not, it, the, the, the spiritual experiences, the religious experience, experiences that women took part in were very cultic and were very patterned after idol worship. And well, so I would say too, in the ancient Near East culture in general, women were kind of valued like property, like livestock, you know, for the yeah. ability that they had to give you children. And it was all about increasing the tribe and women didn't really have any intrinsic value to engage in culture. And so kind of from the the way that you're explaining this, what I'm hearing is it was really giving women like a ticket to engage in culture in a way that they had not been able to before, even yeah. apart just from childbearing. And it's kind of like what we were talking about earlier, how one woman, one woman brought the Savior into the world, but that, the, that characteristic of bringing life and order into darkness and chaos are extended to all women, not just the one woman who brought the Savior into the world. And it's kind of the same idea. It's like, okay, one woman brought the Savior into the world. That elevates every woman who will ever walk the earth to a high position. And so you have you have the benefit of having access to those qualities just by being a woman. And so it doesn't if you can't have a baby, if you don't want to have a baby, if you do something other than making children, that you're still considered valuable. You're still considered eligible to have the benefits of like that kind of I want to say salvation, but it sounds like I'm talking about just like, you know, the one act of salvation. I'm talking about that kind of holistic lifestyle, a, a full life is what I'm trying to. Yeah, exactly. And where he says, a woman must learn in quietness and full submissiveness. This is like a whole elevation of women. Like I said before, women weren't able to be taught these things before. In fact, it was against the law for men to talk to women about spiritual or religious things or matters of the law. So this is like, he's and he's not saying, hey, be submissive. Women learn in quietness and submissiveness to the man. He's saying, be submissive to the word that you're hearing. Submit yourself to that. And he's also, I think, reining things in, right? Because obviously they're coming out of this culture where there's this goddess worship and women were very dominant and women are able to have a measure of control and say in the culture through their sexual behaviors, through their sexual proclivity. There is an aspect of being able to exert tremendous influence. And there's this aspect of goddess worship that, that was happening. And so and I think this is interesting because this also taps back onto what we were talking about earlier about how the, the narcissism, how this kind of sets up a narcissistic culture. This goes back to what you're talking about, the sexy submissive, where, you know, what does the narcissist want to do? They want the woman to 
be an object for their gratification, but then they also want to control them. And this is what I think a lot of religion has infused into this these verses. And that's not at all what it does. Paul's trying to restore, telling Timothy, hey, restore some balance there. Here, tell these women to sub- submit themselves to this word that is going to give them greater life and power. And that through Jesus, that the child Jesus, they are going to receive this holistic experience of salvation and fullness of life that they weren't able to experience before. You know, it's not that Paul's saying women can't teach, women can't be in any position of authority. He, what he was emphasizing is that women, he doesn't want women to teach in a way that dominates or gains mastery over a man like they were doing through Artemis worship, through that sexy submissive, through the whole sexual process. So I really think that these verses are actually teaching something that is exactly the opposite of what Christian religion tends to, how Christian religion tends to interpret that verse. And I think Paul is actually here, rather than emphasizing some type of religious submission, hierarchy, I think he's actually elevating women and saying, hey, there's more for you than you've ever had before. Well, and the other thing I hear from it, too, is kind of a war between the cultures of like the patriarchy versus matriarchy cultures. And I what I'm hearing in this is Paul being this person who was kind of teaching the early church, like, what does it look like to follow Jesus? Paul try Paul is saying that, like, in this way of living, there isn't this competition for dominance. There's not this struggle right. for dominance. We're taking that away and sex is not about you know gaining mastery over each other yes you know it's about bonding and a relationship and you know women are welcome you know women like the teachings are open for women too you know women get to learn women get to engage in culture and commerce and all these other things they couldn't do before but it's not about gaining mastery it's about building a better and healthier community and this way of life and relationship. So the word Paul uses for I don't permit women to exercise authority, there's 47 words used in the Bible to that are that mean authority. There's only one place in the Bible that this specific word is used. And this word has to it means to be dominant. And it has to do with the origin of authority coming from women. It was very specific even to the Greek culture. And so he could have used any of the other words for authority, but he chose this one because they, this was, they were dealing, he was dealing with a problem where people were coming in from the Greek society and they had started to follow Jesus and become Christians. And they had previously worshiped the Greek god Artemis. And in that, in their culture, they believed that women were to rule over men. The Greeks elevated women where they ruled over society. There's other verses that Paul talks about saying that women were very influential in that culture and that they ruled men. And they believed that authority flowed from women to men. And what Paul is saying here is, I don't, that's not how it works with Christianity. I don't even believe that Paul was saying, instead, it's men that rule women. 
because Paul says in other places in in another place in the Bible, there are neither Jew, Jews nor Greeks, male nor female. In Christ, there's no distinction. So he's saying we're all on a level playing field here. And we don't lord your authority over someone. That's what he's saying. And so there's also this argument going on where the people in the new converts in this church were saying, well, they believed that because women were created first, that meant that authority would flow from women over men. And because Greek mythology had said that women in their women were created first. So Paul is correcting the situation where the women were trying to exercise this rule in the Christian church like they had done in their pagan temples in Ephesus and Corinth. And Paul was saying, no, Adam was, you're incorrect. Adam was made before women. You weren't created first. And in fact, just like Eve was deceived by the serpent, you were also deceived in thinking that you were created before men and that because of that, you rule over men. He's just correcting an error in their filter. Now, he wasn't saying that all women in general are more deceived than men. He's just addressing a culturally specific issue. And he wasn't allowing. And the reason he says he wants them to remain quiet and not allowing them to teach is because he wasn't allowing these specific women with this filter to exercise authority because of their filter. There's other places that Paul talks about women prophesying and praying in the church about women being in various positions of spiritual and positional leadership. And he talks, like I said before, he's saying there's no male or female, no Jew or drink. Greek. I think Paul's saying it's not, there isn't this cultural distinction that you're making. There's under Christianity, there is a much higher elevation for men and women to be equal. And so because in that cultural situation, the women were trying to dominate men in the same way that men actually under their legalistic cultural system had tried to dominate women, Paul was saying neither one is right, that there is an equal, a spiritual equality between men and women. Yeah, it kind of reminds me a little bit of the Barbie world where, you know, like in the real world, the women have been really oppressed by men for a long time. So then there's this kind of this other world, the Barbie world. And in that world, women take on all the roles of men and all of the power roles. And they kind of like exert authority over men the way that men have to women for a long time. Mm -hmm. Like men aren't allowed to be in the Supreme Court in the Barbie world because they're men and women are superior. And I kind of think that was the same cultural idea and identity Mm -hmm. that I think women in that culture actually had. It wasn't Barbie world. It was just Greek culture who had those Mm -hmm. ideas. And so what I feel like is really being corrected here is, okay, if you're coming into this new system of belief, you need to take some time to to actually learn about that and not be yeah. like projecting your origin story. It's a really better when we are operating together. And that doesn't mean women shouldn't be in places of authority. That doesn't right. mean women shouldn't be on the Supreme Court. Or even in certain scenarios, 
you know, be exercising authority over men, teaching men, being the boss of men, like none of those things are being corrected and wrong here. It's just for, it's more just readjusting a cultural perspective and saying, hey, like, we're not the Barbie world. We're also not the patriarchal world. We're the world where each person has a value and identity. And for that matter, I think he also is correcting people that were coming out of this system of Judaism where women were property and women had no rights. You know, because I, I think people tend to think like, oh, you know, Paul is this one biblical author that diminishes women. But, you know, I don't think that. I think there's 40 authors of the Bible. I think they all empower women. I think Paul is one author that has three scripture passages that seem to, if you just don't know anything about the history or the context or the meaning of the words, and you just read it off the page out of context, you're thinking like, oh, he's diminishing the value of women, when in fact, he is actually addressing specific cultural situations. And unfortunately, many churches, much of the church, have made all whole culture out of it for the last 2,000 years because they haven't interpreted scripture correctly. Yeah. So I think, and well, that's one of the reasons I wanted to have this conversation is because I feel like, you know, it's like we talked about before, people at the top of the food chain, they whip out one verse. And if you take one verse without really interpreting it correctly, you can make it say whatever you want it to say. And it's convenient to have it say that every half of civilization should submit to you. Anything more that you would like to say on submission? Yeah. Like okay. where this idea comes from, why people believe that women are supposed to be submissive. Because I want to say, like, I'm a very vocal woman, obviously. And no, obviously. I'm, I'm definitely not a submissive. People want to know why I'm still single. That's why I'm thinking. We have yeah, sexy submissives in our family. No submission here. I mean, okay, so I do want to unpack that concept of submission because I do think that in relationship, mutual submission is beneficial in that you are wanting to honor the needs of the other person and you're coming together and talking about like, how do we support each other's needs best so that we can operate as a more effective unit? I was telling one of my girlfriends like, well, my idea of somebody like, being my leader or my head to use kind of a, a christianese term would be like someone who supports all of the ways that i feel like i need to be in the world affecting change you know mm-hmm. whereas i think you know the traditional re- religious model is well i can't be in the world affecting change and the man has to be doing that and i think a lot of this comes from there's another verse in the bible that the people who love the verse i just read also love this one And it basically says that wives need to submit to their husbands as they would submit to God. And people kind of take that and say, okay, husbands are God to wives and you have to do whatever they say. And they have, you know, you have to trust them no matter what. So can you unpack that a little bit more for us? Because I think, I think that thinking leads to women getting stuck in a lot of toxic and sometimes emotionally abusive relationships because they think that to please God, they just have to submit to whatever BS their husband wants to mm-hmm. their way. Yeah, I try to think, well, I, the passage that I initially think 
you're speaking about is there's a passage in a book of the called Ephesians again, which is another letter that Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus, and where he says to be women tells women to be subject to their husbands as to the Lord, and I don't think that is telling women to call their husband Lord or anything like that. Well, in this passage. It basically says that they are to be subject to each other. That That's the first thing that is stated. It doesn't say, yeah, women just submit to your husband. Don't be, su- you know, be subject to your husband as to the Lord. It's saying you should submit to each other that they are to love their wives, seek the highest good for her, being caring and unselfish in the same way that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So, and it does say before that, yes, women to women to be subject to their husbands, meaning respecting their position of being a, you know, a protector. And the word here actually is this word hupatasso. The hupatasso is this military term. And it's like, you're going to battle together. You're in war together. You're not some meek, weak little thing that the husband, you just, you do all the dirty work. You are in a position of getting hurt. Under the system, the Hupatasso system, the Hupatasso is like the general and you are a soldier that fights alongside him. And in fact, this is a system that still exists in Israel today. The general goes for, is the first one into battle. If somebody's shooting, the general gets shot. The general is the shield for the troops, right? And so we have kind of, we kind of cringe when like, oh, we hear the general because we, our idea is the general is the one calling the shots, giving the orders. But under this culture, the general was the one who is taking the first shots, the one who's protecting the troops, the one who's running defense for them. And in its this still exists today. And so it's this very different idea of, you know, subjecting yourself coming along under this type of protection and in fact, a protection just like happens in the Israeli army today. This general goes before willing to give his life for your protection. If there's a danger there, he's the one who's going to lay his life down for it. And that's what this passage is talking about. It's not that you know, you have to be a doormat. You're not there to serve his needs. And he's saying, you know, be willing to give your life for her. Love her as you would your own body. Nobody is, you know, not treating their own body well. We have this instinct to survive and take care of ourselves. And that's what he's saying in this passage. But I think if you go back to the militaristic language you were talking about earlier, how women have this kind of like I almost think to think of it as like this pioneering avant-garde role. Women see things, women are doers and shakers and changers. And I, if we're using the military analogy, I almost see the men as like the shield and the muscle behind that. And it comes from this root word, hupa. Where have we heard that word? A lot of Jewish weddings, they get married under the hupa. Why is that? Because a hupa is a place of covenant. So the very idea of submission is rooted in covenant relationship. It is exactly what you said, that it's intended to be this 
place where we come together to defer and submit to each other's strengths and weaknesses. That's like to array, it's a, an order of arranging and it can mean arrange and order or arrange under. And, but the idea here is that we're array for, well, let me back it up first. Okay, so if you read these verses, there's these verses in Ephesians 5, which is another letter written by Paul. And Paul is telling, he starts out by saying, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then he says, wives, submit yourself to your own husbands. Now, that's the only thing most people hear. Wives, submit to your own husbands. The, somehow the first verse gets left out, but everything that is that Paul's writing in this letter is prefaced with this, we're submitting to one another. It's there is at the very root of it, this idea of covenant relationship. And I think this goes back to who God created us to be, what you were, even what you were talking about earlier, that women have in their created DNA that we are bringing life, we're bringing order to disorder. And so we have this very important role that men are just to honor and defer to. But the Bible also says it observes the physical reality that even our sexual culture, I mean, our secular culture has observed for centuries, millennia, that women, the Bible says women are the weaker vessel. It is just observable that there are separate like men and women's sports because women don't have the same physical strength as men. And so there, this is an aspect that is in this word, hupotasso. So it has this idea that what women are coming, ordering themselves under the person who is going into battle, the military, militaristic term, right? Who's go, who are going into battle ahead of us and who are taking the first shot. They're being a covering, they're being a protection for the, for the physically weaker vessel. They're looking out for us. Did that happen when Adam and Ethel did Adam say anything? No, he didn't. Look at the result. And but there's ways we both arrange. Paul is saying, submit yourself to one another because there's ways that we both arrange ourselves under or submit ourselves to each other. There's ways that men do that to the easier part of women, right? And so there's this idea that we're fighting for each other, we're defending each other, we're fighting for the relationship. And then, so Paul goes on to say, so there's all this talk about the submission that, you know, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. And this word head means, well, it's flowing out of the hupotasso, like the protect, you know, the covering, but it is also this word that means headwaters. So the husband functions as this strength, this protective force. I think men in general in our culture, because of their strength, are headwaters. Their behavior, their actions, their choices affect the trajectory of the smaller tributaries, the coming off of them. Not saying that women are smaller people, children are, well, physically they are, but, you know, that they're the family relationships are influenced for good or bad by what she does. So I think he's saying like, okay, wife, support him. Fight alongside him. Let him take the first shots. Don't think that you have to be in that role. But then I I interject something there too. I think too, because, you know, like 
there are outliers. Sometimes women are really physically mm-hmm. strong. Sometimes women, some women just have a personality that's more inclined to being out in the world. And maybe the husband has more of an energy to be at home. He, what I take that personally for us mm-hmm. is in general, if we just think about masculine and feminine energies, females are more receptive, like female energy is a more receptive energy. It's an energy that needs more like hibernation time to develop things and percolate things like yes women and if you think of it in physical terms you know women's adrenal capacity is a lot lower than men we have you know different percent percentages of muscle even if you're a muscular women woman your underlying physiology is just that you need more rest you need to not be in push all of the time whereas men really are made for push all the time and so i think that what what you're describing is more speaking to you have the safety to or you should have the safety if things are operating in a healthy way like they should not in kind of the distorted like the distorted way that we're talking about between men and women often but in a healthy relationship operating as it should women should have the safety to not be in push all the time that doesn't you know operate in in ways you know that like sometimes traditionalism has looked down upon like racing outside of the home or you know whatever you name it doesn't mean you can't operate in that it just means that there should be the safety in that relationship for you to not be in this driving push all the time or feeling like you have to be a woman and a man in order to take care of yourself so it's really about taking some of the weight off of you it doesn't mean that you can't be a strong woman or a vocal woman or any of those things yeah i think that's a perfect way to put it that helps us in our culture understand the heart. Just to finish up kind of like on that Ephesians 5 passage that I think people tend to use as like, okay, women have to submit to the husband and you're supposed to love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ laid his life down for the church. So I think the harder Paul is being put on the men in these passages and again, the top of the food chain has conveniently cherry-picked, you know, some of these verses to exalt what is convenient for that or what serves them because of this idea that women are supposed to submit to men. And I know you kind of just dissected that, but there is this idea that because it says women submit yourself to your husband, that your body belongs to your husband. And you sh- because of that, you owe him sex whenever he wants. So how would you address that? Because I think women get into these situations where it's like the husband wants sex all the time. It's exhausting for the woman. Not that women are also sexual or some women don't have higher sex drives than men, but it's kind of used to manipulate women into being sexy submissives. So, yeah, well, so, okay, I don't remember exactly how that verse is worded. But from what I read, I believe the verses that men are using for that, I think they're cherry picking, again, one part of the verse. Because I think it's actually saying that your bodies belong to each other. Is there? I wasn't even referring to a verse about women's bodies belonging to men. I wasn't aware there was one. There is a verse in the Bible that says, like, your your body doesn't belong to you anymore. You belong to each other. And so, like, I have a friend who on their wedding night, her husband sat her down and said he had a a pornography addiction and he sat her down on the bed. They got married. She was very young when they got married. And he said, see this verse? 
your body belongs to me now. You have to, so you, that means you have to do whatever I want you to do. But again, from what I remember of that verse, I believe it is cherry picking because I think he just picked out part of the verse that their bodies belong to each other. And what I remember that verse basically saying is that like you have to consider each other's physical needs. It's not saying I get to demand whatever I want from you. It's actually saying take each other's physical needs into consideration, whether it be sexual or whether it be rest. And I think that that also fits within the whole framework of anything Jesus taught about being self-deferring, serving, you know, not putting your own sensual needs ahead of somebody else, but considering other people's needs and considering where they're coming from and just not being selfish. And I think it also goes back to those verses we just were talking about in Ephesians 5, where it says, you know, that he's to love his wife as he loves his own body. In fact, it says later in the chapter, it says, husbands, you ought to love your wives as you love your own bodies. And if you love your wife, you're loving yourself because nobody ever hated their own body. They feed their body. They take care of their body, just like Christ does the church. And so the Paul is saying, like, just like people go to tremendous lengths. We eat when we're hungry. We get water when we're thirsty. We sleep when we're tired. Consider your wife's needs and do that for her. She's she's tired. Let her go to sleep. Don't harass her for sex if she's too exhausted, you know? And so I think, again, to remember that scripture interprets scripture. You cannot pick one verse, take it out of context. And not only is that taken out of context with other verses in the Bible, but it's really taken out of context with the whole character of Christ, the whole, all the teachings of Christ, the model that we're supposed to be following after is not like, it's all about me, give everything for myself. <laughs> it's about, well, can you address, so what I'm hearing from you on that piece of things is maybe just more that like, just remembering that you're operating as a unit and that applies to physical bodies as well, not necessarily intrinsically sexually, but actually physically just realizing that you know what affects one person affects the other and so be mindful of that but and when you're talking it's a, kupa. it's a covenant relationship it's a place we come together for each other covenant involves two people it's not just one person getting their needs met it's a place a covenant happens between two people and that is at the very root of all of this the other thing you were just mentioning, kind of being at the root of all of this, was like, what Christ modeled. So I feel like a lot of my beliefs about women really come from what Jesus kind of exemplified in the way that he lived. And so when you're saying, like, what Christ modeled, what do you actually mean by that? Well, Christ, like, Christ was the, he was this revolution, he revolutionized male-female relationship. He, Jesus had female disciples the his closest two of his the people that he was the closest to were mary and martha two women and when jesus rose from the dead the first person the first people he appeared to were two women in that culture a woman's testimony was not even considered valid in court but jesus appeared to these women and he said go back and tell the disciples that i'm alive that you saw me so he's sending them back as witnesses. He is elevating them. Jesus meets this woman at the well who's like a person, a Samaritan. 
who was not a Jew, and the Jews normally wouldn't talk to the Samaritans because the Samaritans they thought were unclean. And so Jesus sits down at the well and asks her to get what first, like asks her to get him a drink of water, which was very elevating because that would have been considered, oh, if you get me water now, I'm unclean because I'm taking water from you. Then he has this whole spiritual conversation with her and he and she it was unlawful basically for him as a Jew to be having a spiritual conversation with a Samaritan woman. We already covered that earlier, how that's against the law. And then he has this conversation with her and he says, you know, he he tells her, yeah, I see that you've had five husbands and the man you're living with now isn't your husband. But basically, he wants to heal her. He's like, I want to reach out to you and I, I'm going to heal you and heal your heart, heal you relationally. And this woman is so excited. She goes back and tells the whole town, hey, there's this guy that tells me everything I ever did. He is totally redeeming this woman's life, her cultural identity, her her gender identity as, you know, a or. I guess maybe more for sexual identity, not a gender identity, but her that, you know, he's not condemning her. He's elevating her and saying, like, I want you to be relationally whole. He he comes to her instead of someone who would have been more reputable in the town. Let's her again be the witness. Let's her spread the message. There's just a lot of examples. Oh, I think Jesus being born to Mary who was probably around 13 years old when she became his mother. They had babies really young then, and but she was not married. They were on the wrong side of the track. She would have been looked down on by the culture for having this baby out of wedlock. And so, yet this is who Jesus, cho- how he chooses to come into the world is through a woman. That was so revolutionary. It was so huge. There are Middle Eastern cultures to this day that believe women are inherently evil. And Jesus just turns that on its head by coming through a woman that people would typically, ooh, teenage unwed mother, not very poor, not very desirable. And that's how he chooses to make his entrance into the world. Jesus just revolutionizes how the world saw women. I mean, no wonder he was this object of scorn and hatred by the religious elite because you know like you keep saying there's religious people that are at the top of the food chain that interpret things in a way that facilitates their position and jesus completely dismantled that by the way he lived his life yeah that's a really good explanation of things divorce another hot topic hot (laughs) so there's some hot takes on divorce because there is this idea in christianity and in christian churches and things that the only circumstance in which is it okay in which it is okay to leave a marriage is if your husband is cheating on you by having sex with another woman and a lot of that comes from you probably know this piece of the bible better than i do but basically there's this passage in the bible where religious leaders ask jesus like hey one of our you know most i think everyone knows who moses is but moses being just kind of a, a big figure in jewish tradition he allowed us to get divorced so what do you say about divorce? And Jesus basically says, if you divorce for anything other than sexual infidelity, then you're an adulterer and you make, and if you get divorced and get remarried, 
then you are both adulterers, which seems like a heavy standard, especially with divorce rates being what they are inside the church, outside of the church. So kind of break down for us what that actually means. So again, this is another one of those passages that you have to understand the history, the definitions of the words, the context, what Jesus is referring back to. It's not one of those things that you could just read the passage and go, well, this is what it means. Because some of the words don't mean what they appear to mean on the surface. And so what's happening in this passage is Jesus is, you know, going from town to town with his disciples and he's teaching them like, hey, here's what my system looks like. And so they come to this one place and these Jewish teachers, they're called Pharisees, come to him. And there's actually two different schools of Pharisees that are arguing about this divorce issue. And one of them thinks one of those schools believed, and we know this because this is actually recorded by Jewish historians that were alive at that time. In fact, one of them is this historian named Josephus, who wasn't even a Christian but he records that this was the historical debate happening then, that one of the schools was saying, you can get a divorce for any reason because Moses issued this right to a certificate of divorce. And the other school was saying, you can't get a divorce for any reason because unless it is adultery. And so one of the things it's important to know is there re- this refers back to this when Jesus is talking about Moses allowed divorce because of the hardness of your heart, he's talking about before Moses died and he's read, Israel's going to go into the promised land before he dies. And he's giving them, he's kind of re- reviewing all the laws that they had been given and things that are going to help them live a better life. And he's explaining some of the laws, basically giving them case law, like what we have, right? In our legal system that somebody can sue for something and what the judge decides, then it's interpreted to other similar cases. This is what Moses was doing. He's giving a case law about divorce. This is how divorce is handled. And so Moses had issued a law about divorce that required, if a man wanted to divorce his wife, he had to get a certificate of divorce. And the certificate of the divorce, the purpose of it was actually to protect women, women, it would ensure that women could get remarried because otherwise, if a man just divorced her and she didn't have a certificate, that would mean the divorce wasn't legal, that she had committed adultery. But the the penalty for adultery was for men or women at that in the Old Testament was either death or having to leave the community. So we know that this wasn't about adultery. It's really about Moses enabling women to go ahead and remarry after she's been divorced. And she has a certificate to say that like, hey, I'm not an adulterer. My husband just wasn't a great guy. And it also would have to be issued by a priest. So the intent of that was to slow things down, give them time to rethink, because if they divorced her, they were going to have to um, pay back the dowry that he had gotten when they when he married her. So he was going to have to give that back to her so she'd have a way to live. And then he would have to relinquish all rights to her because, you know, at that time in the Old Testament, women were like property. And that's not what God intended, but that's what happened. 
And so if a woman married somebody else and that husband died or he divorced her, the first husband can come back and go, oh yeah, she's mine now. I want her back and just take her back. And the certificate of divorce was like, no, no, no. You didn't treat her well. You didn't love her well. She is free. She has a dowry. She can go back to her family. She can remarry. She doesn't have to go back into this bad situation. So she could be remarried and not be considered an adulterer? Yes. So I think, too, well, I'll, I'll get to that last little portion of that passage in a minute. So that's really important to understand that this is what it was really a, a way to help and protect women. There were two conditions for divorce that were stated in this passage in the book of Deuteronomy 24 that I've been talking about, and they are a recognition of an existing condition. It says, if she finds no favor in his eyes and has committed some indecency. So basically what it's saying is not that like, oh, so this is one of the schools was saying, oh, if we don't like her for any reason, we can divorce her. Oh, she burned my food. I'm going to divorce her. They literally could do that. And or, you know, if they found someone younger, prettier, they like better, whatever, they would say, oh, that's what this is meaning that she finds no favor in my eyes. But Jesus is referring back to this passage because he wants them to know, hey, remember, it says in there some indecency, which means to them, it meant sexual impropriety or unfaithfulness. That's what that word actually, that phrase actually means. So he's saying the only grounds you really have for divorcing your wife is if there's some ongoing condition of she's committing adultery, she's sleeping with someone else, basically, and she's not willing to change, then you can divorce her and then you have the freedom to remarry. But if you're divorcing her for some other reason that isn't really serious reason, then then if you remarry someone else, you're committing adultery and you're making her a victim of adultery. And so what he does in this passage that we first started talking about, where these people are, these two schools of Pharisees are arguing about, is it this or is it that? He's re Jesus refers back to this passage in Genesis 2, and he quotes it and he says, for this reason, it's not good for man to be alone because it's not good for man to be alone. God created an easer for him, which is, a you know, like we already talked about, an easer is a strong, come alongside warrior, helper, defender, somebody who has your back, fights with you, the like the hupatasso kind of idea. It's referring to women, I think you're getting. Referring to women. Women are the easer. It's also a name used for Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And he's saying... Because of this, um, a man is to leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And what that passage there means, a man is supposed to, that word leave is loosen or relinquish ties to his world, his family, release a relinquish living under what he's been, how he's been living. He's to forsake that. And he's to be united to his wife. And I love this word united because it means he's to be, he's to cling to her. He's to join her. He's to adhere to her. He's to pursue her. There's this present tense in there that means he's to pursue and keep pursuing. And he's to leave his territory and go into her world. So these men that, you know, 
sit women down and say, oh, your body belongs to me. Now that means whatever perverse, abusive thing I want to do to you, I get to do because our bodies, your body is mine. Mm-hmm. No, he relinquishes, you know, his system to become part of her world and to come into her world. No, or the men that are saying, we got to get you away from your abusive family, right? Or your dysfunctional family. No, he leaves his world and he comes in first. That means he doesn't, doesn't mean he doesn't have a relationship with his family, but it means he makes her a priority. And that's what the next part of the verse says. It says the two will become one flesh. And that means if you go back and you look, read, look up the words in the Hebrew, that means that she's an extension of his own body. She's first, like in an ordinal number first, she's first priority, and that she holds the place of authority in his life. So that's what that means. It doesn't mean, hey, you're here to serve my purposes and be my, you know, little sex toy. I can objectify you however I want. Jesus is referring them back to this passage saying like, hey, you're divorcing her for somebody else. And she's supposed to be your first priority. You're supposed to keep pursuing her. And so they're sitting there arguing about whether or not they can divorce a woman for any reason, like burning their food or finding somebody they like better. Or if it's, you know, or we can get out of the marriage for sexual impropriety. And Jesus is saying, I require a lot more from you than just staying married to her. This verse that I just quoted in the book of Genesis, which is the first book of the Bible, This is my plan for marriage. He's telling them, you're missing the whole point. And the Bible says, I hate divorce, right? Jesus hates divorce. And so God, I think it says God hates divorce. divorce. Yes, you're right. So God hates divorce. And so a lot of people will twist that and say, well, oh, you know, God hates divorce. You can't get divorced. But God hates divorce because of how people get hurt. But one of the beautiful things about this passage about divorce that people take out of context is it really demonstrates how Jesus loves people more than in institutions, including the institution of marriage. Yeah, I think to make things really simple, in Christianity, and I would say most religions, marriage has kind of an elevated place. Marriage is like in churches, you often hear people refer to it as a covenant, which really just means a contract. And I think what's happening in this exchange is Jesus is kind of bringing attention to some of the contractual responsibilities. And the reason I say that is because, you know, when I have read this passage before, questions that come up for me are like, well, what about women who, like, they just feel like they've grown apart from their spouse? Or what about women who have been emotionally abused? Or maybe there's no infidelity, but like the marriage is just really bad and things aren't really working out. And Maybe one person's not willing to work on things. You know, there's all these other gray areas. And my thought on that is that in this kind of like contractual relationship, you kind of define all of the things that God expects men to bring to the table. And generally, generally, when a woman is being loved like that, it's not a relationship where she feels like they're growing apart, where things are just not working out. You know, generally, when you're being really pursued and having someone put your needs before their own, that breeds connection and it breeds healthy communication and ability. And so I think, you know, Jesus is saying, like, 
You don't really have a, a reason to get divorced unless your wife has truly broken the contract. But one thing that I think is overlooked in the nuances of that is, you know, if a, if a man is not loving his wife like that, or at least trying to, nobody's going to do that perfectly, but if a man's not really trying to love his wife like that, he's broken his side of the contract. And I think that creates freedom for women to get divorced in some of these scenarios, which like traditionally have been looked on as or not pleasing to God or however you want to say that. Yeah, I think that is a really great point. What I'm trying to say is there's lots of different ways that men can break the contract toward women besides just physical infidelity. Right. Yeah. Well, I think that's part of, you know, this setting of the whole passage being that in these situations of Jesus showing like my system is different than this religious system of rules and regulation it's just it's a lot higher call to keeping this covenant and it is more easily broken than we than the religious rule of just committing adultery so kind of on the divorce note there's sometimes this idea i think it really flows from those very strict beliefs about divorce but that God can heal anything. So even if my husband's emotionally or physically abusive, I can stay and God's just going to change him in his perfect time. I think we've both seen women stay in relationships that I don't think God would want people to be in relationships where they're getting damaged and hurt like that. But they think they're just waiting on God to heal their husband or whatever. So what is your thought on that? Well, I think God gives us free choice. You know, I mean, if that's what you want to do, I do think God can heal anything. I, I think, but like Jesus said in this passage, Moses made provision for divorce because of the hardness of your heart. I think people get hard hearted and it usually takes something pretty drastic for their heart to change. And I think that's something for women to assess that are you up for that? You know, it's a long haul. And more often than not, people's heart don't change. But, you know, sometimes God does change people's heart. And I've experienced that, you know, situations where I thought there's no way this is going to change. And God has miraculously changed it. Well, I want to address that, though, too, because I think speaking of the free choice of things, God is giving your partner free choice too. And if they're harming you or emotionally or physically, maybe God does want to change them, but they're saying no to that. And God is not going to force them to change beyond their will. And so I think it is important if you're in situations like that to step out of harm's way, you know, and I think that can look different for different relationships, you know, Maybe you're in an emotionally abusive relationship and you're working through some things, but, you know, if the other individual is showing some hint that they might be willing to work on things, then maybe you create some proximity boundaries mm-hmm. to kind of assess, you know, how sincere they are about really mm-hmm. being willing to work on things. But I really don't think it's God's heart ever for women to stay with physically abusive people to wait on him to change them. I agree. I don't think... I mean, I think, so I think, like I said, God's given us free choice. He's given the man, the wife, you know, the husband, the partner, a free choice. He's given the woman a free choice, right? 
So if you choose to stay under that, you can, but I would not recommend it. I think usually when women are choosing to stay, women have their own dysfunction, their own fear. They've maybe been abused in other relationships or uh, growing up, and they don't have good value for themselves. They don't have good boundaries. And I think most often that is the case where they don't feel like they have options. So they will most often stay hoping for a miracle when I think the person is making clear I'm choosing not to change. And we have to respect that person's choice, whether it's right or wrong, we have to respect that. And I think, you know, I think about how Jesus said the first and the greatest commandment is to love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second one is like it to love others as you love yourself. And I think you have You cannot give something that you don't have. You have to have respect and value for your own personhood. And if you don't have that for yourself, if you don't align with who God says you are, I mean, I just think everything we've talked about today shows God's value for women. And you have to align with that. And if you don't think you're valuable enough to have a standard that prevents you from being in a physically, verbally, emotionally abusive relationship, then you're not really loving yourself and you're not going to really be able to give love to somebody else. And now, do you have to divorce them? No, you can get a separation. You can get legally separated. You can get separated, but make sure you have, I would say, you know, some type of professional accountability or something speaking into your life, helping you make sound decisions and giving you perspective so that you're able to be able to see things more clearly and make good decisions. Well, thank you for taking the time to share your thoughts today and kind of explain and teach. I think there's so many knots in these things that kind of women can get caught up in. And, you know, my hope and goal is for women to be free and I've noticed that religion is something that women get stuck on a lot that they don't get free because they think that religion is holding them back from that and and maybe religion is but I don't think that God ever wants women stuck in toxic or abusive cycles so I appreciate you kind of unraveling some of the complexities here and you, you so at this part of the podcast I usually ask people where people can follow them, but I know you're not super active on social media. So any parting thoughts for women or anyone listening to this podcast? Yeah. Well, thanks for having me and thanks for being willing to listen to my thoughts. And I think parting thoughts would be to just remember that if you read these things and they don't make sense to you, even if you're not- Or share these things. Or hear these things if they don't throw it out there. Well, one, remember, you know, you can read the Bible and look at Jesus's life. Jesus was pretty hard on the religious people. The religious people killed Jesus. So a lot of times that religious system is not life-giving. It's, you know, really oppressive. And so look at how Jesus elevated women. Look how he engaged with women, talked to them broke the law to talk to women and engage with women and elevate them in ways historically they had never been elevated or elevated in the ways that any other world religious system elevates women. And then if there's a reason that it seems to contradict, 
it doesn't, it's not really contradicting. It's just, there's things that you don't understand that you can take time to learn about, research. But even if you just consider the context that, that these passages sit in and think about, look at the other things in that passage, what Jesus is demonstrating. Sometimes something, we have to be willing to let something bad die for something good to grow in its place. We have to be willing to let those things go and have faith that God's going to grow up something good in its place and that God loves people. He wants the best for men and women and women and trust what he says, not what a, a person that is continually making you feel devalued, unheard, hurt. That is not a system that you should believe. Yeah. Well, hopefully we've convinced people that, you know, the heart of God is to empower people and to not leave anyone's stuff in, you know, a, a cycle that perpetuates toxicity. So thank you for coming on. Despite being my mother, you were my most difficult guest to nail down in an interview <laughs> with. So I hope everyone enjoyed it. And thanks again for joining. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I'm on a mission to help protect women from toxic relationships by supporting them and recognizing the signs. I also want to help women heal from toxic relationships by letting them know they are not alone. The stories and conversations I share on this platform and in my book, Losing You, Finding Me, are designed to do just that. I'd love for you to help spread this mission by subscribing to this podcast, leaving a review, and sharing it with a friend. Also consider picking up a copy of Losing You, Finding Me for a deep dive into healing from trauma and toxic relationships. Until next week.